This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanem. And this is Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. Uh, we're going to be covering a lot of really great events. But today, we're also especially fortunate to have in studio with us uh, Ziad Abbas, who's the executive director of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance. And we're going to be talking about, uh, this is our yearly show, basically, to talk about the Palestinian Nakba. And, you know, Ziad, we do this show with you every year. You know, it's an honor to have you. It really is. We've known you for a long time, and you're an amazing voice for the Palestinian refugees after, you know, we're going on 71 years now. So even though it's great to have you here, it's not great that we are in our going into our 71st year of the Nakba, and uh, we will continue to talk about it. How have you been, and what's happening with the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance, and what's happening with uh, the state of Palestinian refugees today? Thank you for having me. Of and course. Of course. Um, yeah, we are commemorating the Nakba, and as usual, every year. And actually, here we are in Mecca. Every year, we try to organize some events just to remind the people and at the same time to commemorate the Nakba. But this year we are doing it in a different way. And we try to bring other voices. We try to bring other voices to the to the uh, to the Nakba, not just us as Palestinian. We want the voices of the Native American people. We want the voices of the African American people. They are living in the United States and and connect that to the movement building in, uh, around uh, all the other issues uh, and justice in this world and connect that to Palestine. Yeah, unfortunately, yes, this is the 71 years for the Nakba and for family, actually, my family, uh, uh, all the time when this uh, occasion show up, we have our friend, uh, our brother, actually, the one, uh, the oldest brother. Uh, his name Muhammad, and he will be fi- 71 years old. Wow. So he was uh, two weeks old when my family left the, the village in 1948. And all the time we connect that. And actually my, f- my brother still, like many other refugees, they are, uh, they are not able even to visit Palestine. He left Palestine in 1967. And right now he's not allowed to go back to visit 52 years almost. And he's living in Jordan, and each time he wants to visit Palestine, he go down uh, to the to the Jordan Valley or to the mountains and just look at Jerusalem toward uh, during the night, like many other Palestinian refugees living around Palestine. Yeah, and this time I can't say the Nakba it's uh, it's finished in 1948. The Nakba is continuous, and right now actually we are facing. Um, according to the Palestinian voices coming from Palestine, from West Bank, from Gaza, from East Jerusalem, from 1948, from the diaspora, people like you, that the, um, <coughs> the deal of the century, it's a big yes, threat for yes. the Palestinian uh, be- refugees. Be- before we get into this, because I know, uh, I mean, we're familiar with your story. A lot of people are not. But yeah, we so should hear we your story. So we want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the Hesha. Mm-hmm. And growing up there, when you know that your basically ancestral home was, what, few kilometers yes. away, yeah. but you couldn't go there. Yeah, I'm like many other Palestinian refugees. I was born and grew up in the Hesha refugee camp near Bethlehem in West Bank. 
But my parents, actually, my father is from Zakaria village and my mom from Jerash village. Both villages, actually, they, they are located west of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It's like just uh, 25 kilometers from my refugee camp. And uh, they were uprooted in 1948. And, uh, and I still remember like, the story I heard from my mom many times. Uh, while she's telling the story for others, not to us, actually, because she doesn't want us to be involved. And especially when she speaks with her generation, the other women, she used to say, like, um, that in that day when they attacked our village, Zakaria village, and she had two children, my sister, she was two years old, my brother, he was two weeks old, and they killed the three people in the, in the village in Zakaria. So the people, they are, and they start bombing the village. My mom, she closed the house with the key and she moved to the mountains toward Hebron area. Mm -hmm. And she was, she has the two children with my dad, with my grandma and other uh, uh, people from the village. But the people, they had a little bit of stuff, just they, they thought for one day and they were returned back to the village. Right. They were not prepared that they are leaving and they will not come back. So. But that's true for, that's true for most of the... Palestinians at that time, right? So had, everybody yeah. had the idea, most, if not all, had the idea that this was temporary and that eventually people would be uh, people would be coming back to their villages. Yeah, absolutely. If we go back to the history in that period, there were many people they tried to return back, but the Israelites didn't allow them. And actually in my village, Zakaria, because not all of the people from the village, they moved toward Hebron. Actually, around 200 people. In our village, actually, in 1948, we were 1,250 people living in the village in Zakaria. So around 200 people, instead to go to Hebron, they went toward, uh, 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 they went toward Ramla area. Instead mm -hmm. yes. to go out, and they went toward Ramla. When they stopped uh, bombing the village, they returned back to the village. And they stayed in the village, the 200 people, stayed in the village until 1950. When the Israelites took a decision to uproot them again and they sent them in a Ramla. Like some of our relatives right now from Zakaria village, they are living in a Ramla. Mm -hmm. They didn't send them outside, but they did the, the ethnic cleansing twice. First, when the majority of the people, they left when they bombed the villages. And the second time in 1950, when they uh, the two the, the 200 people and they sent them to Ramla. Yeah, people, they tried to return back. Even after 1950, some people, they used to go, try to go back. But the they used to shoot them, to kill them. And we have many Palestinians, they were shot and killed while they tried to return back to their villages. Uh, and in any case, uh, for our family, we grew up in Dehesha refugee camp. And one of Dehesha camp, it's one of the... How big is... T tell people about how Dehesha big Dehesha camp, camp is. It's a very small refugee camp. It's less than was one square mile. And right now, we are around 16,000 people living in this refugee camp. In less than one square mile. Yes. And... Uh, uh, the camp actually it was uh, in the beginning that the Red Cross International took the initiative to relieve the Palestinian refugees before United Nations started the UNRWA mm -hmm. uh, agency to relieve the Palestinian right. refugees. So people they were standing in tent. Later, United Nations they built small rooms. Each room it was 81 square feet, nine feet by nine feet. Me personally, I am the youngest one in my family, and I was born in one of these rooms. And uh, some of these rooms still exist in some refugee camps, yeah. mm -hmm. despite the, 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 the expand of the uh, numbers of the families and uh, the, uh, 
the, the actually my camp if you look at it right now it's different totally it's not the same it looks like a neighborhood because the people they cannot ex- you can't extend. you have to go the up only mm-hmm. they go up you find people they approached like the 10th floor inside the refugee camp it's crowded so when the, uh, now i forgot the year when you and i met but the first time you ca- when I, the first time i met you is when you came with ibda 1999 jamal 1999 look it's like that's 20 it's years it's 20 like years 20 ago. years ago imagine time flies and this was the first time you came with this uh, artistic Dump. group dabka group here yeah. with uh, young people young uh, they were like about 16 to Actually, they were 14. from 13 to 15. 13 to 15 yes. that, that year. And you came to San Francisco for a performance. Uh, tell us about your experience working with the youth there. Actually, in that period when we uh, started working with the youth, uh, for first as a, uh, a refugee, I grew up in the refugee camp. I grew up in the streets of the refugee camp. No one paid attention to your needs right. as a child, and except your family. And you go to United Nations schools, and I graduated from United Nations school before I went to the high school, which the United Nations school is a very poor system. And the education system in that period, actually, it was censored. We are not right. allowed to teach anything about or learn anything about Palestine and for me learning like even I remember still they used to teach us in that period that Columbus discovered America for example (laughs) and later you find out Columbus did not discover America and so the child uh, children in refugee camps and right now actually in all Palestine Gaza Strip West Bank Palestinian children without childhood they grow there is up, no childhood. No, chi- no childhood uh, in Palestine. And they are not even uh, treated as children by the Israeli occupation. So for us, no one paid attention for us uh, when, while we were children. Later on, when I grew up and I went to, uh, uh, I finished my school and my education, and I was working as a journalist mm-hmm. in Palestine in that period. And uh, Oslo came, and we felt we as refugees, we were totally ignored. No one paid attention for Palestinian refugees. And Oslo agreement, Oslo agreement totally ignored us. So we decided to have this refugees initiative and we start working with children. And it was an amazing experience. We worked with 30 children in the beginning. We were in the street, 15 girls, 15 boys. You met m- most of them and you too. Yeah. And these children, in the beginning we were two leaders with 30 children. After two years and a half, three years, we become 32 leaders. And this is how we continue with the dancing group. Right. And we th- it's not just dance, it's not just art. It's uh, a lot of things related to, uh, to us as refugees. I remember I visited my village for the first time. It was in 1998. And it was changed my life. And this is when we start taking the children and we uh, designed a new dancing show related to the visit. When you visit your village, the impact, how this impact you, what it means, how you imagine when you speak about right of return as a Palestinian refugee in a simple way, way. And when you dream about it, how you imagine that, how you return back. And it was an amazing experience. And still right now, we were the only Palestinian organization in a refugee camp in that period. But right now we have many, many, many organizations all over refugee camps, not just in Palestine, even in the diaspora and the other refugee camps, especially in Lebanon. They were in Syria during before the civil war in Syria and in Jordan. Um, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Ziad Abbas. He's the executive director of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance. Um, former journalist, uh, human rights activist, 
Um, and a, a refugee. I was just going to say a, a proud refugee. We're going to be uh, discussing in a little while a very important event that uh, is sponsored by the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance. On Wednesday, May 8th at 7 p.m. at Berkeley City College, there is a commemoration event uh, commemorating the Nakba with a movement building for collective liberation and indigenous Palestinian and black liberation. It's going to be fe- featuring Nick Estes, Lara Kiswani, and Christian Davis Bailey. It's, a, it's actually a very impressive lineup, uh, Ziad, of, of speakers that you have. Hopefully, you'll be speaking there, too, at some point. Actually, we would like to other people to speak. And three, the three speakers, actually, they are amazing speakers. Just yeah. Nick, I spoke with him this morning, and he just got back from Palestine the first time. Oh, first time? The first time in his first life. Example. He learned about Palestine. He spoke about Palestine before, but he told me this visit, it's an amazing visit, and it contributed to his education, to his life. And the same, Kristen, actually, he was in Palestine and he was an activist. And Lara, she's one of the main organizers. Well, we know Lara. She's been on this show. This show many times. And this is something, when we speak about Palestinian Nakba, it's not just we want to highlight the Palestinian Nakba, but we want to connect this struggle because still the Native American people, they are struggling for their rights as indigenous people. The same, the black uh, 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 for Palestine and African-American. We want to connect uh, this in our event. So I encourage the people to come May 8th at 7 o'clock to the Berkeley and, Community and by College. The, yeah, and by the way, you can go online, and I think it's important to go online to get your seats, uh, meccaforpeace.org, M-E-C-A for peace.org. This is... It's, it's really going to be an important event. I mean, you know, Ziad, I know you hear this. I hear this, Jamal. We hear it all the time. People who still, I mean, it's maybe too strong to say, you know, are ignorant about Palestine, but, you know, don't know the full story. You know, this would be a great opportunity not only to hear about Palestine from Palestinians, but to hear about the intersectionality, as, as you said, of collective struggle with indigenous communities here in the United States as well as uh, the African-American struggle. I mean, they're all the same. Yes. Connecting struggles, basically. Yeah. Yeah. For example, when I met Nick the first time and I heard his story, and he he grew up in a, a native reservation in South Dakota. And having someone, he was in the Haitian refugee camp too, Ten days ago, actually, he was visited. He visited Dehesha, and I want to hear him. I am very curious. Like I want to hear what, how that this can connect. The same for Chris, as African American growing up in the United States and visiting Palestine and learning, and struggling. And he's in solidarity with Palestine while he was in Stanford University, right. organizing activism. It's good to hear and connect. And to be honest with you, to educate our uh, ourselves yes, too, absolutely. as Palestinian, we need to be connected with the other struggles and to hear and to build solidarity movement. Right. And we, we want to talk, I mean, uh, and we'll keep talking, of course, about, of course, the Nakba, because for our listeners, uh, May 5th, right? Uh, May 8th is, is May the event. May yeah. 8th is the event. But May 15th is the, May is the official May day of official. commemoration. May 15th is the uh, official commemoration day. But it's also coming at a point as a juncture where we're seeing all this political football now. Mm-hmm. Again, kind I, of I would like call it game. political theater. Uh, you know, 
People Not are football. speaking on behalf of the Palestinians. There is the deal of the century, uh, the Kushner-Trump deal of the century, which basically just getting rid of more Palestinian land or appropriating more Palestinian land. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, actually, as far as uh, from a political uh, status, uh, the relationship between the government, I'm not talking about the people, the U.S. government and Palestine is at its worst now. I mean, this is... Well, this is yeah, do you think it's the worst? No, no, this is the impression. You know, this is the impression that you have an administration which is anti-Palestinian, publicly anti-Palestinian, an administration that basically said that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, mm -hmm. an administration that said that Israel can keep the Golan Heights, an administration that's now saying we're going to give you the deal of the century, but we know what's hidden in that deal of the century already. Actually, we saw part of the deal of the century. What, while, uh, when you said uh, about Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and this is the already the implementation of the deal of the century happened. Uh, one year, uh, over a year ago, when they took the the, the 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 decision to move the embassy and to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the Israel of Israel. In any case, me, I I am uh, the same like you guys. I read the reports all the time, every day, and you can hear the people in uh, different me social media and what's going on with the, the deal of the century. It's they think that this is the end and they can kill the Palestinian cause, and they can find uh, uh, a solution in a way or another, because if you go to all the engineers of this deal of the century, from <laughs> Gushnar, from Grimblatt, and Friedman, the, the Israeli ambassador, and the Bolt American and ambassador, and Bolton, and, Bolton, and Pompeo. No one, of Bambayo, no one speaks anything about Palestinian state, even they don't mention it. And the last actual statement came, uh, two days ago from Kushner, and when he said they were uh, lo long negotiation about Palestinians, said they didn't work. We are trying something new, something new, which is which it is less than a state. So in any case, when we speak about the relationship between the United States government and Palestinian Authority, absolutely, this is the plan since Oslo, Jamal. We know that mm -hmm. Palestinian Authority right now they have nothing to offer. They offered for all these years since Madrid negotiation in 1992 until now. And now they are, sorry to say it, they well are we naked. Yes, but they we know. Nothing. That's right, uh, Ziad. But we know a little bit about the plan. It doesn't involve a Palestinian state. It doesn't involve negotiating with Palestinians. Mm -hmm. It involves negotiating with such fantastic, great people as Benjamin Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman and the United States. So these are the three people, the three stakeholders that are attempting to negotiate the deal of the century. And when you scratch below the surface, you, you see that the reason Mohammed bin Salman is involved with it, he's supposed to pay off the Palestinians. Because really the grand plan, Ziad, is we are going to give the Palestinians economics, we're going Solution. to give them money, Right. And everybody will be they happy. They offered Abbas $10 billion. Yes. I heard it was $30 billion, No, this uh, is 30 from, for a long time, from, long so, term. from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Actually, th there was a report that, uh, you know, uh, that Saudi Arabia is involved. Of course, we know it's involved and that the Palestinians would receive $30 billion. 
That's this insulting. Is the, this is the, like, absolutely. That, that's why I it's said insulting. they're, sell, no, they're the, trying to yeah. sell it piece by piece, basically. Yeah, yesterday they were publishing this uh, uh, report about like whatever they had the negotiation with Abbas when he was in Saudi uh, visiting Saudi Arabia and when they tell him uh, they offered him he told him I will give you first 10 billion dollars you can start and of course in the future and Palestine will have a new economy the people there will be living in better situation the same building industrial areas near Gaza and in West Bank etc but the idea is for the Palestinian Authority of course they know this is uh, uh, um, Blood money. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they cannot go farther. They did what they need. Their task almost finished right. between Oslo until now. Now they are looking for a new leadership, which they find out that this leadership can come from other Arab countries and they can <laughs> negotiate with other Arab, Arab countries. But the issue for us as Palestinians, the most dangerous issue, it's they moved first, they moved the J Jerusalem. They are offering whatever about uh, billions of dollars. But the most dangerous issue, it's the Palestinian refugees issue. Right. We saw how United States government, they cut their contribution to United Nations, the $360 million. It's cut. Cut, totally. And to the UNRWA. To UNRWA, yeah. And right now, this morning, there were a report from UNRWA. And, uh, and from now until September, they need to raise the funds. Or they will not be able to continue to do the services for all Palestinian refugees they are in Palestine or in the other refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria. The other issue for the, de uh, the deal uh, uh, of the century is is that they are not clear about what is the connection with Jordan because they speak if there is no state how they will deal with the Palestinian people are the Jordanian involved and in other uh, something related to Jerusalem you are from Jerusalem mm -hmm. we grew up we know uh, uh, Jordanian government kingdom they take care of the holy city the holy, the holy pla places holy places, not holy the holy places. The, sorry the holy places yeah. and now they are planning to take it from them and give it to the Saudi Arabia. This is the way uh, they, yeah, they, they speak about it. Well, one thing I know about uh, Jordan, and they started talking about the Confederacy and different yeah. ideas, and uh, this was, uh, I think, a few months ago, maybe about six months ago, and King Abdullah was adamant he didn't want to have anything okay. to do with it. They were trying to kind of box him in to take some responsibility in a way, kind of uh, maybe manage the... Yeah. Uh, people who are living in the West Bank and wherever, and he said, no, 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 we're not gonna play this game anymore. So so from their end, uh, they put a lot of pressure on Jordan, but Jordan has refused. They can't do it. Yeah. The idea, it's they, not just they refuse, they can't do it because you have the majority of the people living in And different Jordan, stories, and then we hear about mm -hmm. Egypt giving some uh, land in the Sinai, Sinai. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All these games, and that's why I mean, my opinion, they have different versions of the deal of the century that they've been kind of... It's uh, the same deal, Jamal. No, they had different versions. They were testing the they're ground all with the, the same. Egyptians, with the Jordanians. But, but they're all the same. And that's why they, ha they didn't reveal it. It's been two years. The, the we reason, there's we haven't seen the right, final plan. Right, but there's another reason they haven't revealed it. And I don't know, we didn't speak about this as yet. But the other reason is that one of the main players, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, cannot... They want to wait till after he tries to form his government because there's a chance he may not be able to form his government. He may get indicted. And the All one of this. the, you know, so they're they're waiting for the announcement of the Kushner plan yeah, until after June. The thing I wanted to say, though, is that fundamentally there's these 
there's these plans are really not that different. They don't because they don't solve the refugee problem in a just uh, way with with justice and international law. They don't solve the problem of borders because the other thing, Ziad, mm-hmm. I think you saw this, is that they're gonna they they annex the Golan Heights, and they're gonna annex some of the settlements in Palestine. Yeah. So the annexation, which is illegal, you know, as we know, under international law. The process of annexation and the destruction of, in, of uh, historic Palestine continues at a very rapid pace. There's no incentive for them to do the, the peace deals, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it's uh, for me as Palestinian, and we experienced many kinds of deals in the past. Many kinds of projects came to the Middle East, even many, ki- many initiatives, even since Camp David. Actually, if the Palestinians accept Camp David... Would be it w- great. <laughs> it will, comparing with whatever they are offering. What's <laughs> clear about this, the deal of the century? And here, if we want to go deeper than... what I don't care that much about what they think, but this is the reports coming from Israel, too. Mm-hmm. The idea for the deal of the century and what Israeli government or the leaders of the Zionist movement now in Israel and all over the world, they want to protect the future of Israel for another hundred years. Yes. This is how they look at it. This is an opportunity. We have White House standing, giving us everything. They give us Golan Heights. They give us the, the move the embassy to Jerusalem. They're going to call a settlement after Trump in the Golan Heights. Yes, they exactly. They're going to call a train station <laughs> after Bay, Trump, Trump in Jerusalem. Yeah, and this is like for them, this is the best can happen where they can secure the future. Because psychologically inside the Israelis, they don't feel there is a future when you think for long term. Yeah, I'm not saying this in an emotional way, or but this is the fact. If you looked at Israel right now, who's living in Israel? If anyone thinks that someday you will have a lefty government in Israel, you are dreaming. It will never happen. It's never going to happen. Because many Israelis, even liberal, liberal Zionists, they are leaving Israel because they don't want to live under uh, uh, very right-wing governments. And they don't see the future because they learned for 71 years we spoke about Nakba, but for the Israelis, 71 years, they are, they are watching the Palestinian people. They, they will never gave up. They continue struggling. If you look to their jails, it's full of Palestinian fighters. Yeah. And uh, look for Gaza, 12 years under siege and controlling Gaza and the people, they still every Friday they go protest and right. tomorrow they will go protest. So it's, it's very clear. The only thing that's going on right now, and I can't see it, the whole area, it can, it can change. In a moment, they will announce this deal. Uh, that's the voice of Ziad Abbas. Uh, Ziad is the executive director of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance, journalist, human rights activist, proud refugee. And uh, we're hoping that our listeners uh, will want to hear more about uh, what Ziad is talking about because the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance is going to be uh, uh, doing a commemorating the NECBA event on Wednesday, May 8th at the Berkeley City College Auditorium that's at 2050 Center Street in Berkeley. Movement building for collective liberation and indigenous Palestinian and black liberation. Great speakers, Nick Estes, Lada Kiswani, Kristen uh, Davis-Bailey. This is uh, Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in beautiful San Francisco. We're streaming live on Facebook Live, Jamal Dejani too. And uh, you know it's always great to have Ziad here, Jamal. It's always, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, keep you here to mm-hmm. join the conversation. Yeah, we're because gonna, we're gonna expand w- the we're, conversation we're a little bit. We're uh, gonna switch gears because uh, when we uh, were planning the show, 
every single week something happens, yes. right? So the most important thing, um, of course, this past week, aside from the hearings and uh, that we're seeing in Congress, right? But the rise of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, the recent attack in uh, on a synagogue in uh, po San way. Diego. Po way. And the the young, I would call young terrorists who attacked the synagogue, 19 years of age, also planned to set a mosque on fire. No, he did. He did. Before, He's the one right? that yeah. set the mosque on fire. On yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago. So the thing, the other thing about this white domestic terrorist, white Christian domestic terrorist. I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um. The other thing that came out in the in the media uh, uh, just yesterday, Jamal, is that he was a devout churchgoer and listening to the rhetoric of evangelical Christians is mm-hmm. one of the things that was his his uh, inspiration. We, we talk about inspiration when people do some of these things, and it's interesting in the context of some of the rhetoric, Ziad, that we hear from the White House. I I feel this the stage the phase this kind of, let us call it the phase, the phase of, of what our lives yes yeah the, the, that uh, uh, really we are living in uh, a, uh, very hard difficult watching dehumanize the others yes and normalize hate hate to become normal yes and I I, I know uh, not the issue all the time it's Palestine but actually it's connected to absolutely Palestine. because what Israel for example did for all over the world they normalize killing the Palestinian they normalize the action against the Palestinian they normalize arresting children and torture them put them in jail and no one pay attention to the to them and right now in the whole world we can say the same it's become normalized you can see children you separate the families and you put children in a prison and there is no enough reaction to stop that separating like, children at the from, border yeah and the borders yeah. exactly and what this you, country does absolutely and you can call others uh, by by uh, racist and uh, still the media can catch it and uh, against it look for Ilhan Omar the attack on Ilhan Omar it's unbelievable and I, I still this is something what I call it like wow everything become clear there is nothing hidden right now in the, like in the bus right now they speak in very clear hey Golan Heights is not Syrian land and just you can switch it to become for Israel Jerusalem is not below, doesn't belong to the Palestinians it's belong to the Israel, to Israel at the same time you can take children the borders, take them and deport their families and will take care of the children or put them in jail. This is the era, I call it, the phase that creating this kind of hate and growing up and giving a green light for other people they are really living this kind of um, ideology in their brain where Fantasy. they are yeah, superior and right. they can control and they can not just they can control or think about it, they start taking action about right. it. And this is dangerous. Well, the main this is very, very dangerous. Yeah, well, the main issue why I actually started talking about this, and especially this particular case, because also there is a disconnect like, uh, it's, that's like, you know, uh, people are compar- uh, compartmentalizing anti Semitism and Islamophobia. And racism, whatever, and they're not making connecting, that connect, them. connecting them. And now, at least, you see from this example that 
anti-Semites are Islamophobes and they are probably homophobes and they are racist and whatever. And I think this can be used, maybe not the proper word to say used, but can be taught yeah. as at least an eye-opener because in a way, you know, when we talk about the Palestinian issue and you're working at Mecca, but we also have a lot of uh, Jewish support in the Bay Area. The Palestinian cause has a lot of members from the Jewish community, like JVP and others, who actually don't stand with Israel. And, and then you have the government of, uh, you know, Trump, etc., that wants to criminalize you if you criticize Israel, right? So yes. well, the, the anti-BDS laws. You know, yes. anti-BDS laws or, 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 or conflating the criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And it's not true. Right. Yeah. Actually, for us, like, for example, in Mecca, we are for 31 years now, like the organization. And it was under attack many times. Both of you remember during that exhibition, the child view oh, yeah, exhibition that's in right. Auckland. That's when right. It was tried to censor it and the censorship trying to attack the people, shut them down, still going on. Now, what I can say about this. I'm not, yeah, I agree with you, but still, this has become very dangerous because there is an action. They took an action, people die, people killed, the mosque attacked, synagogues, churches. And I can say this is where it will, it will take us. Now I agree with you. This is the movement where it comes. Yes, we have many people like from... Uh, uh, from the Jewish community where they take a stand, and especially the young generation. And actually, actually this is worry Israel. Israel feel worry about it. Of course. Because the young Jewish people growing up, not just in the United States, and all over the world, they don't want to have this kind of connection with Israel. Because it's really difficult job for them to defend Israel. You cannot defend a country, violate the human rights in every aspect of the daily life of the Palestinian people. Right. It's very difficult issue. At the same time, there is a necessary need for the communities to build this kind of movement, solidarity movement, and to come together to stop this kind. It's a new fascism era, I can yeah, say it. Yeah. And uh, absolutely. But th see, I, yeah. I just want to make a comment about this um, dangerousness that you speak about. We're seeing it uh, directly in terms of attacks on congresswomen. So we have the two first Muslim congresswomen, Ilhan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib. And, un and unfortunately, Ilhan has been attacked, not, not just viciously, and not just uh, in mm. a racist, uh, derogatory, uh, Islamophobic way, but with specific death threats so bad that they had to arrest people who were making death threats against a U.S. Congresswoman, with the full support, basically, of the White House. When you call people the way, you create the environment for others to take the initiative and to do the life threat for like uh, people. But nobody, no, and but nobody I'm cares not, about. To be this. honest with you, I'm not surprised. Do you think like the American Congress, they they are ready to accept two but no. two are uh, two Muslim women? They are not ready yet. They look uh, still. A few weeks ago, they were attacked. The Muslim ban and right. all of that attack Islam. This is something. But this is something good. On the other hand, yeah, you look at it. It's it's moving in the right direction. 
direction Absolutely. when you have other people like you have a congresswoman they are speaking on human rights and value and come out and speak in support of all the people they are living under oppression I agree with you totally this is something when it comes to life a threat it's a huge but it reminds me another good thing amazing thing actually happened two days ago when 100 black women led by Angela Davis Supported, went to DC yeah. to support Ilhan Omar and yeah. many other people and many organizations from different backgrounds a Christian Jewish Muslims uh, atheists going support this is something where we can count on but still we need to do more oh, we need definitely to do more needs a lot of work yeah. I mean we are living in a very unusual times in a uh, you know where you have a I would say a white supremacist government in the White House. But I want to remind you, like it reminds me all the time when Hanin Zobi in the Israeli, right. how she was under attack all the time. All the time. All the time. And still you find Hanin Zobi, she's a strong fighting and... and she's fighting, she's no longer in the Knesset. She's now, but still, her life under threat. Mm -hmm. Every like day. Every day in her daily life. And this is something, when you create certain kind of environment where a, a, a white supremacist, where they can take the initiative, and they are in a way or another in control like they have their own media resources and polluting this kind of the whole earth about racism absolutely other people will take in uh, actions and this is the dangerous issue about it. we're speaking with uh, Ziad Abbas the executive director of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance today you're listening to Arab talk on KPOO in San Francisco we want our listeners to hopefully go to the uh, the Middle Eastern Children Alliance's uh, website, which is Mecca for Peace, M-E-C-A for Peace dot O-R-G. They're having a fantastic event coming up on May 8th at 7 p.m. at the Berkeley City College Auditorium that's on Center Street in Berkeley. You're going to learn about the intersectionality. Yeah, but before we go that, I want just to remember this. I was reading this morning, and this yeah. is today in Arabic uh, media. And I was reading about how uh, in Israel, the rabbis, the few, I'm, I don't want to say a few rabbis, about the culture inside the Israeli community against the Arabs when you speak about this kind of attacks. Today, actually, yeah. and actually, I don't, uh, I'm not promoting him, but Saeb Arikat, he was reacting to that, actually. <laughs> Saeb, uh, from the Palestinian Authority, he was reacting to that. And when you read the report, how these rabbis with children and from preschools, how they dehumanize the Arabs, well, yeah. one of and them, uh, just to be specific, yeah. one of them basically said that uh, Arabs are genet genetically, they are Ge exactly. uh, basically uh, inferior. inferior and they want to be under the occupation. They want to be under they occupation. Can't, they can't run their own life, basically. That's, life. That sounds like what they said about African Americans when they were brought here by slaves. They yes. wanted well, to be slaves. That they wanted to be, exactly, he, that, that Arabs want to be either occupied or be slaves. Because this is what they need. This is what they exactly. need. This is in genetically, because yeah. Genetically and this is the most racist thing you can hear, like. And it's coming in a country where they But it happens here, too. Yeah, of course. It happens because they... It happens... This is the environment it happens in different, actually. Even right. I, I don't want to like ex, uh, let Europe far from that. No, no. it's happening in yes. Europe, too. Where this is in the stage. But let us say another way. We have a problem in the Arab world where you have people with resources and regimes actually playing this kind of role and supporting their, well, the, in a way or another. Well, I'm glad you brought, that, it, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Ziad, because we never stop here on Arab Talk 
being able to critically analyze because we've had lots of critical analysis about Mohammed bin Salman, about uh, the crown prince in UAE. We, uh, you know, CC in Egypt, we, we are on it all the time. What I would like to ask you about is that, we, because we don't have that much time, but we should talk about some of the good things in the Arab world. And seeing what's happening in Sudan is really remarkable. I call it Arab Spring 2.0. Which, which by the way, we're going to dedicate a whole show. A whole show to. To talk about Sudan. But yeah, this is kind absolutely. Of, and I will, but this is a two. big deal, yeah. isn't it? I mean, what's happening absolutely. in Sudan. Absolutely. And this is something like, you know, we wake up this, these days and just we want to see what's going on in Algeria and what's going on in Sudan. And especially because we have a big hope. And you can see the movement uh, in Sudan is really, really insisting. It's beautiful. Uh, and it's amazing and very peaceful as much as it is the army. And try, because when we spoke about normalize, the, 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 the action against the human, uh, against the Palestinian people, normalize the action in the United States against Muslims, etc. What go, what's going on in the Arab world now to make it normal that the military, they can control any Arab country and control the people and oppress them, especially they are learning from uh, 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 Egypt. Right. And they have amazing slogans in Sudan and in Algeria. When you look, read, just read that the signs when the people they are protesting that we, they don't want to do the same like what happened in, in, in Egypt. In Sudan, have I mean, I, as a Palestinian, I'm counting on it. I have a big hope that this movement will reach what they want to have a real democracy. And the big threat right now for Arab regime, I can say, is democracy. The moment you as a people in the street take the street and start protesting, calling for, uh, asking and struggling for your own rights to be represented and to get your basic needs. Actually, in Sudan, they are asking for basic needs. That's right. This is for them, it's a threat. They don't want the civilian. They don't want the community to be in charge. But not and only did Bashir step down. They don't down. want the military to be in charge. Yes. Well, that's the point. Not mm -hmm. only did Bashir step down, but the head of the Muhabarat and the military. It's still not enough because it's not for, enough. The, for the, if you follow the negotiation between the uh, protesters and the, the, the military council, they are still, the military council refused to have the leadership, which they are speaking about like 15 people to lead the country, that to build a council to lead the country to the transition period. The military, they want to have the majority. But the protesters, they want to have the majority. Of and course. They want everyone to be represented in this council. Because they saw, and you can see that in the slogan, we don't want to have like Egypt. We saw what's going on in Egypt. We don't want to do this. And look what's going on in Libya right now. Even with Haftar and the other government. I don't know. I'm not standing here are here with Libya. Right. Because all what's early. going on, it's too, too early. early, you cannot. But in Libya, it's another issue right now because it's related to actually to resources. And look how France, they are thinking with Haftar, they guarantee more uh, control of the oil in Libya. With the other government, maybe it will be less because they are maybe uh, looking at it in different ways. But way. it does mm -hmm. seem like uh, the Sudanese uh, rev revolution, Arab Spring 2.0, is has learned from our mistakes from the first Arab Spring. Hopefully. Hopefully, inshallah, as we say. But it's really impressive to see what the grassroots movement 
in the Sudan, what they have been able to do with this. It's impressive. Absolutely, they learned from the past. And this is accumulation of process. This is how we want to look at it. Yeah. Accumulation. Maybe the first, since what happened in Tunisia and Egypt and in the other, it was the end ended by a coup in Egypt. We are watching what's, what's going on. Over 60,000 people in addition to uh, in the prison. In addition to that, people disappeared in Egypt. No one, no freedom, nothing. And Sisi is now president forever again. You know, yeah, they, he's they, like, they, uh, the they changed the constitution. But in any case, in Sudan, is, uh, uh, it's, I can say it's different because they are including everyone, yes. all the groups and the union they are playing. And to be honest with you, women playing huge, huge leadership in, yeah. in Sudan and in Algeria. With this struggle, if you remember in the beginning, with Bashir, he was still in charge. They arrested a group of women. They were like taking, they were right. organizing, but later they released them. But I can say, yeah, if it didn't, I hope it will succeed. I hope and so. And I hope so. But I know it's part of the accumulation. And this is what's in the Arab world. Doesn't matter which kind of, it's moving. People, they will not accept the operation anymore. Maybe sometime they go fast, like what's going on in Sudan right now and in Algeria. But if they will not achieve that, later it will come another wave, I call it. Another, another wave. uprising, another waves of protest and struggle until this world will change. And by the way, um, the Israelis see this and the Americans see this and the Europeans see what's happening in these regions. And I just want to go back to something you said earlier, Ziad, when, when the Israeli government kind of looks into the future, it can't be a pretty picture of what they see in terms of you know, the ability of a, of a racist apartheid structure to survive, you know, forever. It just doesn't look good. It's, it's uh, yeah, I agree with you totally about that. It's not just for the people, I, I, even what the, the American government, they plan for the Middle East, but it seems it's very clear for the Arab, and especially I can say the new generation. I am not, I will not be surprised if something happened even the reaction coming from Saudi Arabia, the people living in Saudi Arabia, yeah, because they right. are living in oppression, and other are uh, Gulf countries. Look, who's in the Arab country right now? They are. They feel settled and secured. No, no one. Look about Iraq. What's going on? Look about Syria. Look about Libya and Yemen. It's ignored totally. Right. No one major, speak about Yemen. Major catastrophe in Yemen. Absolutely, and it's ignored by the international community and by the Arab themselves. Look for uh, uh, um, Tunisia, still not stable. Look for, of course, Palestine. And here to go back, Palestine is a key issue. Right. When you speak, look, uh, in Algeria, they, raise, they wave two flags. And Algerian they're and Palestinian. And Palestinian. Yeah. In Sudan, you have many slogans connect to Palestine. And uh, they, are, uh, they are clear. And uh, in their position where they are standing, they don't want any... Any Arab reactionary Arab regimes to interfere in their or struggle. foreign uh, I mean or a, foreign any foreign intervention. Yeah, to intervention. I mean they want to handle this alone. This is what's make it amazing in Sudan and in Algeria. That's the voice of Ziad Abbas, executive director of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance, and uh, former journalist, human rights activist, ref Palestinian refugee. I will say proud Palestinian refugee. We encourage our listeners to check out the event commemorating the Nekba, Wednesday, May 8th at Berkeley City College Auditorium on Center Street. Check out the Middle Eastern Children Alliance's website, meccaforpeace.org. We only have a few minutes left. You know, Ziad, we, we never have enough time with you, man. 
because we never have enough time for what's to cover what's going on in the Middle East. We never do. We never have I'm enough time. All over, not just that I want to speak about the Middle and, East. And uh, yeah. we are always so appreciative of you. You know that. Thank you, we guys, appreciate for you. Me. We appreciate your work. We appreciate the work that Mecca is doing now. It's very impressive. They, you guys have been in existence, what, 31 years now? 31 years. So um, it's, it's a time to kind of celebrate uh, what you've been able to accomplish. It's a big deal, man. We had. I, I hope we will not celebrate because we need to finish. We need to stop because we want to solve all the problems. So there is no need for us to be exist. But I want to, I mean, yes. Ziad, I mean, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the water project, which in my mind yeah. still is among the most amazing projects that any organization has ever done in Palestine. Frankly, I think the water project is among the most important projects ever. I'm, 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 uh, I'm really very proud of Mecca work, especially with this kind of projects when you speak about water. And I say that because for me, I used to shower one time a week, Jamal, because no water in our refugee camp. And my mom, she used to carry the water in her head. But right now, having clean water, it's an amazing project. We, we as much as we can, as much, uh, we try to do our best. Right now, I'm so happy to announce we reached the number 50 water systems in 50 schools. Wow. In Gaza Strip. Yeah. And good. 23 kindergartens, 73 water systems we built. And still, we, are, we will continue to build that. Because water is basic needs. And what's Gaza going on re- these days? It's something I'm... Well, the Israelis have used water as a way to kind I mean, to put it frankly, it's been a, a way to poison Palestinian children for decades. Yeah, and it's used as part of the ethnic cleansing to make part, it difficult yeah. for the people to, they want to make it difficult for the people to survive and to Absolutely. live. So the people, they can leave the land. And we still do other projects like in Gaza and Lebanon. We are working in Lebanon with Syrian refugees. We do a lot of educational projects. Classrooms we have for students from Sy- Syrian refugees, they can't attend uh, regular schools, so we have like for them especially classes, and we are so lucky. The, our community, mm-hmm. I can say, Arab community, the community in San Francisco, and all over, uh, they are really taking a stand. They are, they want to be in solidarity with Palestine because work with Palestine is not charitable work; it's solidarity work, and yes. this is what what it means. And they want to support. Uh, children and support uh, uh, what we need they need in their daily life to survive well again we want to thank you and we want to encourage our listeners to go to the mecca website to attend your event and uh, again you're welcome to come here anytime you've been listening to arab talk on kpo san francisco 89.5 fm also make sure you go to our website arabtalkradio.com where you can subscribe for free for our podcast exactly. on your favorite platform iTunes, SoundCloud etc. So we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>